and welcome to a bright lights video here. What's going on here? <laughs> Sorry about that. Good to see everyone today. Glad everyone's joining us. So welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. If you're coming in from the, um, um, the Zoom app, be sure to click on the Q&A box or the chat box, the chat window, and give us your comments as we're going through the, the material today and what we're discussing and talking about. If you're coming in on the Facebook page, you know what to do there as well. Just click in the uh, comment window and we'll be monitoring all your comments and adding them to the program. So let me bring in the panelists. I'm your host, Drew DeGrado, and uh, Scott Smeltzer is here. Right, hey, Scott? Drew. Yep, there you go. Hi, how you doing, Scott? Wow. Good, good. Jeff Smelter. Uh, oh, see, Scott, you're from Exxon. I mean, make sure I let, tell everybody where you're from. And and, and Jeff, uh, Scott, let's try Gettysburg. You work with the Gettysburg Church, right? That's right. Okay. Jeff is from the Exxon area. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Bob DeGrotto. How are you doing? <laughs> Jonathan <laughs> works in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Oh, boy. You're confusing me like crazy. Jonathan, come on. We're... We know that's but yeah. where where are you from, Jonathan? Where are you coming from? Uh, I'm from uh, Gettysburg. I'm here with Scott. That's great. Okay, <laughs> everyone's in a good mood. We hope everyone in the audience is in a good mood. We want to talk about some very interesting things today. Um, well, I'm not even going to tell everybody. Just go ahead, Scott. Why don't you take it away? What are we talking about? All right, Jeff's going to uh, lead us in uh, a look here at the Book of Hebrews and particularly the timing and what the people have gone through. Uh, the dangers that they're in now, uh, and also the things that they're about to be facing. And so, Jeff, how about you take it away? But also, uh, doesn't it also apply to us as well, right? Oh, when, whenever we're in, somebody once said about the epistles in general, uh, you need to remember you're reading somebody else's mail. But if you're reading somebody else's mail uh, from, you know, a biblical writer, people have a lot of things in common and we can learn from the lessons written to other people over and over and over and over. And, and you know, we should add that um, letters that were written to a, an immediate audience in the first century, it was intended that they would be for posterity. Paul could write to the Colossians and the letter was to the church at Colossae, the saints at Colossae, and yet he would tell them, see that the Laodiceans read this uh, after you've read it. Right. And uh, so when we read scripture, we do need to understand the context, uh, but we need to understand it was intended to be a value to us. Well, here's just a, a timeline representing the whole Bible story. And of course, as we look at this, the Old Testament covers this much, and the New Testament is going to cover a period right down here. So let's take a look here at the New Testament period and zoom in. And we'll put our decade markers across the top. Now, guys, you know, um, I've, I've done this kind of quickly and not very precisely. Just real quickly, I have a cross there at about AD 33. That's often what is said. What do you guys, without an elaborate discussion here, what, what's the discussion here about the date of Jesus' crucifixion? Well, it depends on when he was born, sure. right? Yeah, that there's some discrepancy in our calendars. Was he born, um, according to our calendars, at the beginning of our calendar, was he actually born four to six years before that? What could that result in, his crucifixion being around when? 30. 30. 
Herod the Great uh, died, what, 4 BC? Yep. And he's still alive at the birth of Jesus. Uh, the, the dates by which we date things by the birth of Christ didn't develop till hundreds of years later. So like the year Jesus was born, nobody was walking around saying, hey, what year is it? Oh, zero. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so they missed it a bit. He was born around 4 BC. Luke tells us Jesus was about 30 when he began preaching. So we can't be exact because we're only told that he was about 30. And then we look from the Gospel of John in the ministry of three years. So it'd be, I'd say, late 20s to around 30. So disclaimer, this is not to be a precise uh, represent, representation of these dates, but it'll give you an idea. When, when the Gospel first begins to be preached after Jesus has, has been crucified, raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, uh, beginning on the day of Pentecost, the, the uh, church is made up almost entirely of, of Jews, Jews who have become believers in Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah. There were no Gentiles in the very beginning. There's some proselytes mentioned amongst those who were present on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and that could have been Gentiles who had become believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Peter can address the audience this way. Men of Israel, listen to these words. And as you go through the first few years, it's primarily all Jews who are Christians. Um, how did that go for them? Well, it started off, they had much favor with the people. But then, Acts 3 and Acts 4, you see opposition, particularly coming from some of the Sadducees at the, at the very beginning. And then, of course, the Pharisees are involved. And then, of course, with the stoning of Stephen, uh, Acts 8 tells us a great persecution. Again. And just to get a sense of how severe that persecution was, uh, Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, is, is very much involved in it. And you have this being said in Acts 8, 1, on that day, the day that Stephen was killed, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the Apostles. Verse 3 says, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and driving off men and women, he would put them in prison. You know, we get the sense that today, in the time that we live, um, Christianity is under under attack. Wouldn't you say a, a lot of us feel that way? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Have you had, are we anywhere close in our cult? Well, we don't know how close we are, but at least at this point, we don't have people actually coming into our houses to find out if any of us are Christians and hauling us off to prison. Nope. We might have somebody roll their eyes at us, or speak unkindly to us. And, and keep in mind, this is Jewish believers being persecuted by Jewish unbelievers. That is, Jews who believe that Jesus is the Christ being persecuted by Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then we come to chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way of, of Christ, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Would you say, Jeff, that uh, they weren't even called Christians yet at that time? They were just you know, there was those that belonging to the way? We're told in Acts eleven twenty six the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, which, right. is, which is after this. Yeah. Uh, I think you could say they were Christians, but that term doesn't seem to have been used yet. Yes, yeah, Scott. 
one way I think it's helpful for us to understand the mindset of the early church is this. Um, we're Christians, right? Are any of you planning on not being a Christian anymore after the day of resurrection? Nope. That's, that's unthinkable. It's, that's who we are. That's who we're going to be. Well, consider the Jews were waiting on their, their Messiah. No Jew was thinking, well, after the Messiah comes, it won't be significant to be a Jew. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If that's who they were, and they're still doing Jewish things, they're still, Peter's not eating BLTs or ribs or shrimp. Uh, people are still resting on the Saturday, which is fine. We'll see Paul doing Jewish things too. But Paul will draw the line, you can't make that part of the gospel on the Gentiles. But among the Jewish believers, it's Jewish people waiting on their Messiah, and now they're Jewish people with their Messiah. So if, you, if your religion, which was from God, the law of Moses, is pointing you toward the coming of the Messiah, and uh, that's what you're looking forward to. When that happens, you don't say, well, I'm going to renounce what I've been all these years. Right. You say, we've arrived. Right. Uh, there's a retrospective look at this persecution in Acts chapter 26 after Saul, Paul, has become a disciple and an apostle of Jesus Christ and is arrested. He has occasion in Acts 26 as he speaks before Festus and Agrippa to describe his part in the persecution. And he says, this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Isn't so we, interesting? Yeah. Uh, I just picked that he, he, he's trying to force them to blaspheme, but before when he, when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, he thought they were blasphemers. Yeah, well, he, I, it sounds like to me, he's saying he, he wanted to catch them in it and have the evidence so that he could, he could condemn them. Yeah. Well, there's another thing that we need to understand about these Jewish believers at this time. And Scott, you've already kind of painted a picture of it. But in Acts chapter 21, after Paul has made what we call his third journey, um, and he's coming back to Jerusalem, James and the elders meet with him in Jerusalem and say to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. Now, this is about AD 56, which would put us a little over 20 years after Jesus has been crucified, maybe as much as 25 or 26 years after Jesus has been crucified. And at this point, there these Jewish believers that James is referring to, especially here in the, Jeru- in the Jerusalem area, are zealous for the law. And what does that mean? What What practically do do we see that meaning as we look at Acts chapter 21? Well, first of all, is he commending them for that? He's certainly not rebuking them for that. He is, he's, he's saying because they're zealous for the law, they're upset about what they've heard that Paul is saying. Now what they've heard is not accurate, but they've been told that Paul is going around telling Jews elsewhere not to keep the law of Moses, not to circumcise their children, not to follow the customs of the people, of the Jewish people. And James is wanting Paul to disabuse them of that notion. James is wanting Paul to convince the Jews that he himself will keep the law and that it's not wrong 
for these Jewish believers to do what they're doing. So my question is, to what extent, what kinds of things might this entail, especially as we see indicated in Acts chapter 21? Well, activities that are going on in the temple. As a matter of fact, the way that James wants Paul to disabuse people of the notion he's anti-Moses is by participating in a vow that some of the disciples there have taken, and he wants Paul to pay for the sacrifices to be at charges. And as you read Acts 21, how do you guys think it's, it looks like a description of the Nazarite vow that's described in number six? Seems like it. Mm-hmm. And when you read number six, part of that entailed, <laughs> once you've grown your dedicated head of hair, uh, during which time you've not allowed yourself to be defiled by anything under the law, then you go down to the temple, you cut that hair, and you offer that hair along with some other offerings, including animal sacrifices, and the priest is to assist you in doing these things, and there's the wave offering and all of that kind of thing. So you have disciples of Jesus Christ, believers, believing Jews in the first century, and they have not walked away from the temple service. They are still availing themselves of the Levitical priesthood. All right, anything more on that? Yes, I, I think it's important to understand that section, but some people feel that Paul did something wrong here. And I think they're thinking of what Paul said in Romans and Galatians, that you don't need to do these things, and then they think there's a contradiction here. Paul said that th- th- there's a huge difference in that these are Jews, and the people he's saying don't need to do these things and shouldn't be doing these things are Gentiles. Yeah. Uh, easy way to see it is what Paul did with Timothy and Titus. Who circumcised Timothy? Paul had Timothy circumcised. Yeah, in fact, the text says that Paul took him and circumcised him. Yeah, I'm not Paul. sure if that means he did it himself or or he took him to somebody who did it, but maybe. Yeah, he, he, I, I suspect he did it. Um, <laughs> he's uh, he, Paul's been rabbinically trained, and he he's he's taking Timothy to work with, among other people, Jews, and the people in that area know he's a Jew, but they know his father is a Gentile. Thus, they know they might question whether or not he was circumcised. Because he was a Jew and the Jews were to be circumcised, that would be a problem. So the text in Acts 16 says he had him circumcised because of the Jews in those parts, not because Timothy couldn't be saved in Christ without it. He was already saved in Christ. But you look at the difference between that and Titus. In Galatians 1, not for a minute would he put up with the idea that Titus should be circumcised. And what's the difference? Titus is a Gentile. Yeah. And so Paul, we see taking a vow in Sincrea. Paul's wanting to get back for a feast. Paul's, you know, doing these things. And so the oftentimes when people are criticized, there's a fragment of truth in it, and then it's taken to a different level. Paul is telling people they don't have to be circumcised, but he's not telling Jews not to circumcise their children. Paul circumcises Timothy. Um, It's okay for Jews to do Jewish things, but don't think that's the gospel. And as we're going to see in Hebrews, don't be looking backwards as if that's the main thing and missing the main thing. You have your hand up. Uh, Yeah. So we have a question that came in uh, along these lines um, from Joe. Yes. Does this mean that God gives us time to change our traditions? I think certainly it it illustrates that God is realistic. (laughs) Um, 
I, I don't know how much I would say about changing traditions, but I guess I would put it this way. There are traditions that are not wrong. And in the case of the Jewish religion, it was not only not wrong, it actually had been God's requirement for these people. In Romans 14, yes. um, when Paul is discussing the observing of days, which I think probably means he's referring to Jewish Christians who keep the Sabbath or some of the feast days. And what he says is, what Paul says in verse 6, he that regards the day regards it unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. So it, I think Scott makes a good point when he's, he's pointing out that, no, it, it, it's a mistaken concept to suppose Paul had done something wrong. And right. Paul, didn't have, Paul didn't have a problem with Jewish Christians who didn't have is, is, uh, understand everything, who thought that they should still abstain from certain meats and rest on Saturday. They weren't doing anything wrong. Yeah. What they would do wrong is if they started judging their Gentile brethren for not doing that also. Because the Jewish things, not the gospel. Now, one thing I need to clarify, just a little housekeeping here. We meant to mention this earlier. I've got this persecuted by unbelieving Jews, and it looks like it's in the 40s, in the decade between 40 and 50. And, of course, that persecution started much earlier, back in the 30s. But this is just poor graphic design, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Now, before we move on to our discussion of the book of Hebrews, one more date that we need to get on our timeline here is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. What happened, in a nutshell? Titus, the Roman general, comes in and destroys the city, destroys the temple. It says Jesus said that uh, it would happen, and that was prophesied about Daniel, and no stone would be left on another. So, Yeah, and I think it's important what you mentioned, Jonathan. Jesus had said this would happen. In Matthew 24 and Luke 21, he not only said it would happen, but he said this generation would not pass away until mm-hmm. it happened. So that was a known thing that was coming. Now, let's ask this question. When was the letter written to the Hebrews? Well, In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32, the text is looking back on a time of persecution. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And it'll go on saying in verse 33, partly being made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly becoming partakers with them that were so used. So you suffered some persecution and you shared with those who did. For you both had compassion on them that were in bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So we're going to have to move our date for the book of Hebrews down to get it past the period of persecution. Now, again, this is not real precise. We could have it a little bit earlier and still be past persecution, I suppose. But uh, we're going to have to move it down this direction. Uh, any comments there? Then in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, it looks like we have indication that a generation of early elders have have died, have passed on. The, The text says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The American standard says, remember those who had the rule over you, and instead of saying considering the result of their conduct, says the issue of their life. The language just sounds like that there have been some people who had a profound influence, teaching, being examples, were their leaders, and those men are now passed on. 
And, uh, but, but the writer is calling upon his readers to remember them and look at the, the product of their lives, which to me suggests we're going to have to move our time for Hebrews being written a little bit later. Uh, and even if we get it down here in the 60s, we're only 30, 30 something years beyond the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, we can't go much further than that. Why? Well, the temple wasn't destroyed yet. When it was destroyed in 70 AD, in the book, we're saying that they are practicing things that required the temple. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 4, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And uh, that seems to imply the temple service was still in place and, and therefore the temple still standing. So we're before AD 70, which seems to put the book of Hebrews probably in the 60s. Now, now, that leads us to this. Imagine the effect of the destruction of the temple on Jewish believers. If I'm a Jewish believer, who frankly may not have grown nearly as much as I should have in understanding all the things pertaining to the gospel and Jesus' priesthood, I've become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, and I, I am worshiping God through Jesus Christ, and, and yet I'm still going down to the temple. To me, the temple is is the house of God. I'm still availing myself of the services of the Levitical priesthood. And when I do so, I believe I'm, I'm doing this in service to God. If my concept is, uh, and rightly, that, aha, the Messiah is here. We've arrived. Our kingdom is here. And now all of a sudden the house of God is destroyed. And, and what has been so central to my devotion in my life, participating in the animal sacrifices and those kinds of things is gone um, that, that could be a real blow to somebody who has not grown as he ought to have grown. And so in the context in Hebrews chapters five and six, where the writer is pointing out to the people that they have not grown as they ought to have grown, he says, move beyond the foundation. Uh, in the American standard, the way it says it is this, it says in Hebrews chapter six and verse one, wherefore leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ. And that's confusing to people sometimes. But I think that if we look at what he enumerates as the foundational principles, we'll see that each of these things are things that Jews, even before Christ, uh, understood. Devout Jews understood these things. Um, and so they were preparatory for Christ. They laid a foundation for understanding Christ. But they need to move beyond the things that they had under the law and grow in their knowledge of Christ. So, for example, repentance from dead works. It was repentance a thing that Old Testament Jews understood? Ezekiel 18. Yeah, okay, that's a good example. I like uh, Isaiah 1, where the Lord calls out to people, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's a call to repentance. And David, in Psalm 7, verse 12, if man does not repent, he, the Lord, will sharpen his sword. What about faith toward God? Was that something Old Testament Jews understood? The righteous to live by faith. Yeah. Uh, and Abraham's faith was credited to him for righteousness in Genesis 15, 16. Yep. Notice it doesn't say faith toward Christ. It says faith toward God. Uh, what about instructions about washings? Yeah, the priest had that in Leviticus and preparing for offering sacrifices. And that was what the the labor was for in the tabernacle and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the water pots from which the water was taken that was turned to wine in John 2 at the 
wedding feast in Cana. They were water pots for purification. Jerusalem was full of pools for purification. Um, and by the way, the word here for washings is sometimes translated baptisms, baptism. It's a very similar word to the word for baptism in the New Testament, slightly different. Uh, what about laying on of hands? Do we see that in the Old Testament? Moses is told by the Lord to lay his hand on Joshua and designate him the successor. And Old Testament saints understood the concept of eternal judgment. These were not new ideas once Christ came. These were part of the foundation. And, and I, can see, I can see a Jew who is a mature Jew, a devout believer in God, a, a person who carefully follows the law, looking for the Messiah, and Jesus comes and he is the Messiah, and the individual comes to believe that, he might not see himself as somebody who needs to, to, to really learn a lot. He may see himself as somebody who's got it all now. Um, and so the writer is going to say, no, there are things you don't really have real well. You're having trouble understanding about how Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, and he says back in chapter five, by reason of time, you ought to be teachers, but you have need again that someone teach you the rudiments and the first principles. What kinds of things does he say as he compares Jesus to Melchizedek to show that Jesus is the great high priest? <coughs> well, he starts out, and uh, I assume you're talking about Hebrews uh, chapter 6 or chapter 7, where he says that Melchizedek is a uh, priest of the Most High God. Um, he was the king of righteousness. Uh, he was the king of peace in verse uh, 2 of Hebrews chapter 7. Those are all things that Jesus is, king of righteousness, king of peace. Yeah. And he shows that Melchizedek uh, ranks higher than Abraham because Abraham yeah. gave tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Mm-hmm. Well, if Melchizedek ranks higher than Abraham, he ranks higher than the descendants of Abraham, the Levitical priests. And so if Jesus is a priest after the, after the order of Melchizedek, uh, he's a greater priest than the Levitical priest. And he argues that the Levitical priest had to offer their sacrifices repeatedly. Why? Mm-hmm. It's because they have repeated sins. They need to keep offering their sacrifices for the sins. And those sacrifices themselves really didn't take away the sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, the writer argues. But Jesus offers a sacrifice once for all that does take away sin. So the writer is showing the people, look, what you have in Christ is so much greater than the Levitical priesthood. And then in chapter 8, he's going to argue that the things made with hands, chapters 8, 9, and 10, he's going to argue the things made with hands, the tabernacle of the Old Testament, of course, the temple is kind of the successor to the tabernacle. The things of this creation, they're just a copy, a shadow of the real thing. And so in a very short time, when the destruction of the temple comes, What's being destroyed? The house of God? No, just a copy, a shadow, a representation. You've got the real thing in Christ. And so he is laying this foundation for understanding these things. And then we get to chapter 10. There's this question that arises. If if this is written with a view to the coming destruction of Jerusalem, you might think, Why doesn't he keep talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, number one, we've already mentioned this. They knew that was coming. Jesus had said so. But there's this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. After he's gone through and shown the chief point of which we're saying is we have such a high priest as this great high priest he's been describing 
and the, the physical things, things made with hands are mere copies and shadows and patterns. The real things are the heavenly things, the spiritual things. He says in Hebrews ten nineteen, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holy place, clearly in context, not the physical one, that's going to go away, by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God. See, the priesthood that they're talking about in Jerusalem and the temple that they're talking about in Jerusalem, that's about to go away. But they have a great priest over the true house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and having our body washed with pure water, a reference to baptism. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. I really think in the context here, that day drawing near is that destruction of Jerusalem, in which day he doesn't want their faith to waver. Thoughts? That's interesting. I never uh, seen it from that perspective. That makes sense as you're explaining it there. And so then Hebrews is in part a preparation for what's coming. Now, there's a whole book of Hebrews here, things to talk about. Um but with that background, I think that it helps put things in perspective. Where do you want to go with this? Look at Hebrews here. Let's go back to thoughts. Go ahead, Drew. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, in verse uh, in ten, verse twenty-six. I don't know if you wanted to go there or not, but it says, "For if we go on sinning willfully, after receive what what would be the sin that they'd be go on doing in the context." Or is it just a generic statement if we go on sinning? I've always taken it as kind of a generic statement. Is there some reason we should think in terms of a particular sin? No, no, not really. It comes right after referring to those who have forsaken the assembling of the saints. Um, and it's not that that's the only sin that you'll be lost for. But within the book of Hebrews, you've got kind of three parties. You've got the author. You've got the people being written to, and you've got the people that have already quit and given up. Uh, and the ones that have quit and given up, I believe, are probably still practicing as Jews, but they haven't stuck with Jesus. And so in chapter 6, the author, look at it in chapter 6. After telling them, let's, let's move forward. You, you chapter 5, verse uh, 12, by reason of time, you should be teachers, but you're not. Uh, 5 verse 11, you become dull of hearing. But he says, let's, let's press forward. And chapter 6, verse 3, this we, the author and the people he's writing to, we will do as God permit. As touching those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fell away, it's impossible to renew them again under repentance. Why? They crucify the Son of God afresh, put him to an open shame. And he compares it to land that received rain, received rain, received rain, and just brings up uh, thorns. And he says, but we're persuaded, verse 9, better things of you, though we thus speak. So the people he's talking to, he's saying, I'm worried about you. If you don't watch it, you're going to fall away. 
you become dull of hearing, you're, you're not advancing as you should, you need steadfast, but I'm confident you, you're going to do what you need to do. Those other people that don't even care anymore, there's nothing I can do for them. Yeah. Then in chapter 10, he's saying, so here's what you need to do. Look what you have in Christ. You can draw near in Christ. You've got this better priesthood, better sacrifice, better covenant. Look what you've got. So keep coming together. Keep encouraging each other. Don't abandon our assembling together as the custom of some is. For if we keep sinning willfully, like these people who trample underfoot the blood of Christ. So some of them have just backed out and quit. The author can't do anything to help them. These people, they're not where they ought to be, but they're still hanging on, and he's motivating them to move forward. And, and that's one of the things going on in the book. So the, the, before you go there, Jeff, this flies in the face of uh, people that I've heard say, well, I can be a Christian without assembling with other Christians. Yeah, it does. And one of the things, too, practically speaking, I see this from time to time. Somebody uh, hears the gospel and chooses to be baptized into Christ. And, okay, they kind of have a sense of, okay, now I'm saved and I, I, I'm done. And then they'll be kind of lackadaisical about their assembling. And, um, you know, they might still study the Bible with you some, but they're kind of busy. You know, I, I got there. I'm saved. I'm good. And, and what the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying to, the, to his readers is, it seems like, you know, you kind of felt like you, you arrived. And no, you need to be growing and learning more. And they weren't doing it. And the danger when you don't grow is that you're going to fall away. I used this illustration Sunday when I went over these things. Um, in Akron, Ohio, there's a soapbox derby. I guess they still have it. For years, they've had it. And the soapbox derby, there's a slope, paved slope with several lanes, racing lanes. Uh, the race cars are just coasters. They're little go-karts that kids build with their parents according to specific guidelines. There's no machine. There's no motor in the thing. Uh, they don't have pedals that you can pedal. There's no empty floorboard where the kids can put their feet down Fred Flintstone style and, you know, make it go. It's just all gravity. It's just coast downhill. And what the Jewish Christians were going through and what each of us goes through in our lifetime is not we become a Christian and then just coast downhill. It's an uphill battle. Right. Being a Christian in this world is an uphill battle. And you're not going to move uphill if you just coast. You've got to continue to grow. And if you don't, there's a danger falling away. Uh, Joe came in with a comment uh, or question. It says, is continuing to sin mean not repenting or just falling, uh, falling again? And I think what you're talking about, Jeff, relates to that question. Repent means to change, change your mind and your thinking. So is continuing to sin mean not repenting or just falling again or both? Yeah. So in that in that verse in Hebrews ten twenty six, I like how the ESV words it. If we can, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving our knowledge of the truth, I think a helpful um, verse discussing that is is just a couple of books over in First John chapter two and verse one, where he says, "My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous." I think there's clearly a distinction in the in the scriptures of sinning and refusing to repent like seems like what's going on with a lot of the jews who had fallen away like we've discussed in hebrews and stumbling again falling again and asking for forgiveness through jesus's grace but 
I want to go back to one thing uh, a viewer asked earlier, and we didn't maybe spend enough time on it. We had a, the question was, uh, does this show that God is patient with us in our traditions? Let me see. Ch changing our traditions. Changing our, yeah. Does this mean that God gives us time to change our traditions? I, I did say in response to that, that the traditions we're talking about amongst the Jewish believers were traditions that were from God. I don't think that we want to conclude that if I have traditions that are contrary to God's will, um, that I can just have a lackadaisical attitude about leaving those behind. Uh, God was going to bring a de facto end to the practice of the Jewish law with the destruction of Jerusalem. But there was time during which he certainly was patient with, with those believers um, and it was not wrong for them to continue their, their customs. But we should not infer from that that if I have traditions that are ungodly traditions or contrary to God's word, that it's okay if I kind of go ahead and practice those for a while. Scott. I've got some uh, friends, they're professors, they're Jewish, husband and wife. And uh, I remember one year they were going to be doing the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, they were going to build a little booth to remind them of when their ancestors were in the land. Um, now, if they don't live near here and we've not been able to have Bible study, but if we look, got to look at the scriptures and if they were able to be uh, persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah and were baptized into Christ, I wouldn't tell them that they can't, you know, uh, remember at the Feast of Booths what happened. I wouldn't tell them that they can't uh, remember Passover. It's Passover time. W one of the things that's interesting is to think about the difference between Galatians and Hebrews. So I want to ask two questions. One, what is similar about Galatians and Hebrews? And what is different about Galatians and Hebrews? What are the similarities? Well, they both talk about um, keeping the law. Keeping observing days um, is mentioned in, in Galatians. Um, let's they see. They both emphasize that salvation is in Jesus and not in the law. Yeah. Yeah. They both give the Old Testament quotation, the just shall live by faith. They both show that we're no longer under the old law. Galatians 3, it was the tutor to bring us to Christ. Hebrews, it's the old, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, nine to vanishing away, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what's the difference? In Galatians, is it okay for, does Paul want the people he's writing to to be observing Jewish feast days and being circumcised? No. If they get circumcised, it does what? It, it invalidates grace. It, it makes if they accept chapter five, if you accept circumcision, you have to keep the whole law. You're basically trying to be justified by the law. And you are severed from Christ. Right. Uh, in Hebrews, while he over and over lets know, this is better. This is better. He, you know, here's the old, here's the new, this is better. Does he ever in Hebrews say what Paul was accused of saying? Jews, don't circumcise your children. Does he ever say that? Do you have to eat pork? Nope. No. So in Galatians, and the difference is one is to Gentiles, one is to Jews. Galatians is written to Gentiles who have been taught, you have to do these things 
to be saved in Christ. The other is written to Jews who are in danger, who they're, they're not advancing in Christ as they should. They're apparently too wrapped up or influenced by friends and family, maybe too infatuated with the temple, too, too ingrained in this and not moving forward in Christ, and they need to be taught which one they really need to put the, the, the eggs in the basket and which one is actually better in moving forward. So if I can transition back, because we've got kind of an ongoing conversation with a viewer here uh, who had asked about the uh, traditions question. Now he's giving an example of what he has in mind when he's asking about, does, God, does this mean God gives us time to change our tradition? He says, what about stations of the cross? If somebody were a Catholic and he, he was accustomed to observing that, now he becomes a Christian. So let's take, first of all, praying to Mary. That's something Catholics do. I don't think that we should say, well, that's your tradition. You can keep doing that for a while. Right. right. Um, that's, that's wrong. Right. Stations of the cross, I'm not sure I understand enough about what they do. If it's just a matter of making note of the various events that led up to the crucifixion, that's one thing. But if it's, what, what's involved in the stations of the cross observances among the Catholics? I don't know. Well, Drew would probably be able to tell us. Yeah, I have a vague memory. It goes back many years, but it would, uh, I think it was primarily during what they call the Lent season, and you would go there and each of the steps, and I forget all of them, what they were in the order of which was, but it was like you said, Jeff, it's leading up to it. And you would, you would go in front of each station, all, I think it was 12, and you would sit then in the pew at that station and contemplate that event. One would be like where, where Simon helps Jesus with the, the cross itself and he falls, and you would then pray and remember that event, and you go to the next station, remember that event. So I can't remember the exact event. Like This is 40 years ago at least. Jonathan, there's, there's an... There's another question similar to this discussion here, so I'll just throw this in. We can discuss that also, um, saying that we come from Catholic traditions, so should we keep some of those? And the, their example that they give is Good Friday, etc., and points out that Paul also seemed to keep the traditions of the, of the, the he says, a Nazarene. So the it's Nazarite vow, I assume, is what we, what we discussed there. So different traditions, I think, like... Um, um, Jeff, forget your name for a second, Jeff. Jeff mentioned some Catholic traditions that I think are clearly not biblical, praying to Mary and things like that. But are there some traditions from other religions that not right, not wrong, but can keep those? That's a very interesting question. And, and I think it hinges partly on, on this. There are things that get promoted as systems from some denominational group which I don't want to promote and promote that denominational concept, but the idea in and of itself was not wrong. For example, let's take Stations of the Cross. Uh, suppose, Jonathan, suppose nobody did Stations of the Cross. That wasn't the Catholic tradition. But you put together a PowerPoint in a lesson, and you titled it, you know, The Way of the Cross. And you talked about, here's where Jesus went. And you talk, and you had a slide on, I'm not sure what all the stations are, but he's before Pilate. You know, he's scourged. You know, uh, they give him the cross. At some point, he apparently falls. Simon, the, uh, Simon of Cyrene, I started to say Schwarzer, um, takes it out. And if you had a different PowerPoint on each of these points as you led the brethren through remembering what happened to Jesus there, 
would there be anything wrong with that? Not a thing. No, that'd be that'd be good. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. But now, if we had a little statue uh, that we're supposed right. to pray to at each of those stations, and I don't know that they do that, uh, so I think. But if they did, that would be wrong. Yeah, that would be wrong. Right. So, um, well, those are good questions. All right. All right. Well, um, did we get all covered all our questions we had from viewers? Yeah, I think I think we did so far. But okay. we want to invite more questions. Anyone has questions, you can go to BibleQuest.tv anytime and fill out the form on that page before future programs. Your questions will be addressed. But go ahead, Jeff. We'll just wrap it up, so, guys, because we're about half a minute from the end of our time today. So if somebody has a closing observation or remark you wanted to make yet and gotten in edgewise yet, now's the time to do it, Jonathan. So, uh, so basically, just to just to clarify that question, as far as it comes with traditions uh, and things uh, coming from an outside source into biblical Christianity and following Jesus, there are some things, and it could be plausible that there are some things that um, are acceptable to one person that are not acceptable to another, and that's okay as long as it doesn't contradict the law of Christ. So, um, as far as um, what Paul says uh, in First Corinthians chapter nine, um, where he's talking about different backgrounds and things, and he says he became all things to all people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those under the law, as one under the law. Those outside the law, as one outside the law. But he makes the distinction, but not outside the law of Christ. And so I think that's just a helpful thing to think about. Where it comes from, we have two questions coming from Catholic tradition. Looking at the Bible, and from what I understand, there are some Catholic traditions that are contrary to the Bible. But there are some Catholic traditions that aren't contrary to the Bible. And so if you want to keep those, I think that could be okay, if, if that's fair to say that you guys can discuss that. We have a, a viewer who just uh, chimed in mentioning that a lot of these Catholic practices that maybe just the thinking about the so-called stations of the cross in and of themselves might not be wrong. She says such externals often include other externals or Catholic practices include externals like priest vestments and incense to which they right. give great significance and all of that. So we don't want to leave the idea that you can just endorse all of the Catholic paraphernalia practices. Exactly. Yeah, because you're talking about things that were invented over centuries, added into uh, the, the uh, religion, and whereas actual events of what Christ did, that's biblical, and that, that's history that's in the Bible. So there's a distinction between those two. Any other thoughts, guys? Uh, we are out of time. So thanks, everybody. Yep. Thank you. Everyone have a good, good week. Look forward to seeing God willing next week.